Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Well, this evening is the 15th sermon in our sermon series on the letter of James. And our study is James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now, we've seen how the Apostle James, the, the spiritual surgeon, has examined the issues among the wealthy and the poorer members of the scattered congregations of Jewish believers. He has explored the sin of partiality. He has underlined the evils that follow jealousy and rivalry. He has pointed out how some Jewish believers have allowed that jealousy and rivalry to grow into covetousness and quarreling, a very serious matter, indeed life-threatening for their fellowship. He gives the reason. It's due to prayerlessness. And that inevitably will lead to selfishness, because at its heart is a spiritual adultery, turning inward, curving inward to oneself. They saw how spiritual adultery is friendship with the values and motivations of the world, rather than friendship with God. James is extremely concerned, because the danger is, When believers live as if they are non-Christians, the time comes that the believer lives so consistently, so characteristically in non-Christian ways, he or she no longer has any twinge of conscience or remorse. And so James questions whether any true conversion has ever occurred at all. He's gone deep surgically, to find the cause. Now, in these verses, he goes stronger yet. You can see things have come to a head for him as we begin chapter 5. The lab coat and stethoscope, as it were, are put away, and the gown and the wig are put on, and James stands before the bar as prosecutor, He is like Ezekiel or Isaiah, Jeremiah, the minor prophets. He brings a charge, a lawsuit against the people in their disobedience, in their spiritual adultery. He becomes, as it were, another Old Testament prophetic prosecutor. And he uses similar language that his hearers would leave them in no doubt Echoing those prophets of old, he says right out, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is James' strongest rebuke. It's as if he explodes in anger. But we must be careful here because this is not a sinful anger, but it is a an indignation that is is filled with tears. He sees these people on the precipice. 
and he wants to stop them before they tumble into error and finally far away from the fellowship in Jesus Christ. We all can know this, can't we? When someone close to us has made a string of dangerous choices, we at night may stay up and weep in fear, in frustration for the people we love. It may seem as though it's anger, but it's, it's anger that comes from our hearts and is, is filled with emotion. We know we cannot control them or force them, but we may pray for them, we may admonish them with tears. Indeed, for many of us as well, we, when we contemplate those whom we love, who, who say no to the gracious offer of the gospel, we cry out again, don't we? In prayer, with tears. One pastor wrote it like this. As I was walking in the fields, the thought came over me with almost overwhelming power that everyone in my flock must soon be in heaven or hell. Oh, how I wished I had a tongue like thunder that I might make all hear, or that I had a frame like iron, that I might visit everyone and say, Escape for your life. Ah, sinner, you little know how I fear that you will lay the blame of your damnation at my door. Such is the Apostle James. He is driven with an overwhelming concern and love here. There, this, this deep-seated, this worldliness that absolutely, completely contradicts what is meant to follow Christ, James must shout at these congregations. And so we see here in these verses how James brings the charges gives the evidence and also warns of the judgment. He means to shake them. And indeed, for all of us, at the very least, should call us into self-examination. We may indeed be shaken too. So let's begin then. He presents the charges. You'll see these in verses 2 to 3. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. What we see here is how James deliberately uses the imagery from the Old Testament prophets in this quick-fire way, these images of death, and decay drawn from the Old Testament. Clothes, which are moth-eaten, is a deliberate allusion to Job's lament when he finally speaks. He says this, man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. This is how Isaiah speaks of it as a sign of God's judgment. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm 
will eat them like wool. The contrast you see between the hoarding heart and the steward's heart could not be more stark here. James is pointing out that the one of the covenant family of God has the steward's heart. In other words, it beats with a godly expectancy. But the hoarding heart is dead, rotten, moth-eaten. Notice the last sentence. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, what does James mean here? Well, notice how the whole question of the culmination and fulfillment of things in the last days is absent in the thinking of these rich merchants. There's no question in their minds of any form of stewardship, that they serve the Lord in that way. In other words, they have ignored completely that the earth is the Lord's and we are stewards, not its owners. In other words, we will be accountable for how we manage the provision God has made for us. In other words, every believer should know that whatever he or she possesses is stamped with a special stamp. Imagine it like a hallmark stamp struck on the bottom of a vessel of precious metal. A stamp that says simply this, this is gifted to me by Christ. This is looked after and cared for by me for Christ's glory. Notice how he marks the time. You've hoarded this wealth in the last days. This is not just the future. That is the day of judgment when all will be revealed. But it's in the last days in terms of its use in the New Testament. The example will be familiar to us from Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. My dear friends, we live in the last days the days since the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and present rule of the Lord Jesus. It is now. So consider what James is saying to us, as he said to these rich merchants so long ago. He gathers up not just material wealth, where the merchant has placed his focus, but rather all the privileges of the last days. Not just material wealth, but the material wealth and all that Christ has lavished upon us by his grace. We must always consider that the wonderful privileges that we have, the blessings we have by virtue of the gospel, are to be regifted, as it were, in the furtherance of that gospel. It is not to be kept secret or to be kept safe. The picture here is actually terrifying that the testimony of such hoarding 
will be so damning. It is as if a fire is burning within the hearts of these merchants. James strikes them again and again with the clarity of the Old Testament scriptures and the warnings, the solemn warnings, which had come to pass and then fulfilled in exile and in death. So these indeed are the charges brought in light of God's word. Now he brings the evidence. In order to see the evidence, we need to do a closer reading of three verses. Three, four, and six. Because there we see three different categories. The first in verse three is your personal practice. Your personal practice. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. Notice, the evidence is on silver and gold, yours. Your personal wealth expressed metaphorically here in coin. There's a focus, therefore, on where the merchant heart is directed. It is directed to the trappings of success. In other words, on money and what it can buy. It is all about image. How one appears to one's peers, to one's business associates. Do you look successful? Years ago, the old saying, you dress for success. But James turns it to connect an image into how your character is revealed before God. And we know that he would have had this notion from his half-brother, the Lord Jesus. Indeed, it's in the parable of the talents, which I read to you this afternoon. Jesus himself says, this is now the last days, the kingdom of God. And the focus as it ends, as you saw and heard, is the disposition of the servant who buried his wealth. Why? He tells us. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. So we see his heart disposition here, don't we? It's revealed to us, I was afraid. Why is he afraid? Because he had decided that his master did not have his servant's best interests at heart. You were a hard man. Therefore, he seized safety for himself. My dear friends, it's clear this is a warning to us. For whenever we lose sight of the overwhelming fact of God's grace, we may suspect that we ourselves must keep Ourself safe. That disposition of the heart, safety for oneself, your personal practice. What is it? Next in verse 4, we have your business practice, your business practice. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Here, we hear the cries of the cheated worker. 
but they are not falling on deaf ears in a human sense, but rather God hears them and brings them in judgment. What's James doing here? Well, he's actually making a direct reference again to the fact that God does this. He is God all-righteous. And so he hears the cries of those who are oppressed, these chewed workers, or indeed in Exodus, the Israelites in Egypt. The Lord from the burning bush says this, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. We know what the result is, don't we? God comes to rescue his children and to judge those who oppress them. So James here again shocks and shakes these men and women, these families, these clans. He presses them in a question. How Christ-centered, how Christ-honoring are your business practices? Your heavenly Father has a special disposition to bless the poor. You are his servants. Do you ask, how can I bless the ones who work for me? The third is your civic practice. It's right at the end. Indeed, it is the most chilling of all. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Now, what does James mean here? What he means here is that these believers have done nothing to defend and safeguard God's law and practice. It's not as though the merchants have directly murdered, smoking gun in hand. Rather, it is a judicial murder. They've bypassed, they've, they've ignored the law of God, designed to protect the orphan, the widow, the sojourner in your midst. And therefore, the righteous ones are condemned to murder. Now, what's fascinating is the term here, righteous person, is actually singular. In other words, there's one who represents the many, a representative. So we could ask then, does James have the Lord Jesus in view here? As if he himself is standing behind this one persecuted? It recalls for us our Lord's accusatory question of Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. He's persecuted the church in Jerusalem. He's gone with papers from the Sanhedrin to arrest more in Damascus. He's gathered many and thrown them into prison. But what does the Lord Jesus ask on that road? Why are you persecuting me? The one for the many. The many for the one. This indeed is the power 
of union in Christ, one with which we ourselves draw great comfort. I'll give you one example. We do know that God makes special provision for the unborn in his grace. Those that are lost in miscarriage or stillbirth are gathered with the Lord Jesus even now. We know how our Savior always said, Suffer the little children to come unto me. Do not hinder them. There indeed is a specific predisposition of the Lord Jesus toward these children. And this is a tremendous comfort to the believing couple. But it can also shake us to the core in our civic practice. Now, what do I mean? Let's go a little further. Consider how the most recent figures that are reported to the CDC reveal that the number of abortions in the United States in 2019 is equal to the population of the city of Baltimore. Imagine Baltimore just being wiped off the face of the earth every year. Global numbers are a challenge to estimate, but the National Organization of Women gives it its most recent estimate in 2017. The number of global abortions is equal to the entire population of England. Now we would think it madness to detonate a thermonuclear device that would destroy an entire country, but the deliberate mass destruction of millions may pass us unnoticed. This is an extremely hard question to ask us of our civic practice. But to what extent does an offense like this against God's law influence our choices? Does our civil practice safeguard God's law? So James has made his charges, he's presented his evidence, and finally he gives judgment. The judgment we've seen is in the present. So what are we to make of James's conclusion? I would suggest that it would be summed up in the phrase, money talks, money talks. In other words, what I do with my money what I do with my privileges that I have received at his hands in this present age talks to God. So what is the biblical principle that James is shaking us to understand? When we talk, we must talk in the accent of Christ. We all have a different accent now. Perhaps some of us have gone abroad and we know what it's like. Try to speak their language and make a slip. And they realize, oh, you're from America. And they drop into English perfectly and say, would you rather speak English? And you go, no, thank you. I'd rather try a little bit more Italian, French, or German. My dear friends, as believers... We are now citizens of a different country. We talk 
with a different accent. We live our lives differently. James is so concerned that believers understand this. He shakes us in such a way that is not very comforting. Now, have you noticed one thing I haven't mentioned? You know, perhaps we've all seen the courtroom drama. What, what's missing from this picture? I've done the charge, given the evidence, and then the judgment. So what's missing is the deliberation, the due process of law. Where's the jury? They've heard the charge, the evidence, they go and deliberate, they come back and render the verdict and judgment. What James has said here in terms of heart disposition is the jury is our own conscience. God's word exposes, convicts, and draws us to repentance. He speaks to our conscience. So James calls us to re-examine our wealth, our debts, our social conscience. And the measure, the measure is scripture and scripture alone. Not a party platform, not the latest meme on social media, but scripture and scripture alone as James has done. Because when we do this, we can do so confidently. Because the same scripture that may prick our conscience is the one where we learn more of Christ and we learn more of the forgiveness that is there, the privileges of his grace, the great treasury that he has opened and poured out upon us. My dear friends, be encouraged at the end. Seek his mercy. Be healed in the balm of his forgiveness, clothed not with moth-eaten robes, but his robe of righteousness. And start again. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.